Well, this is the, that time of the year, isn't it? Uh, this is that time of the year when we often hear, and maybe we say it ourselves. Uh, this is the time of the year when we hear and say, keep Christ in Christmas. Keep Christ in Christmas. Well, of course, it is a timely plea, and it is a necessary protest. But why stop there? We need to keep Christ in Isaiah. We need to keep Christ in the gospel. We need to keep Christ in every part of life. And we need to keep Christ in all of God's promises. And indeed, Isaiah's burden as the Lord's prophet is to show us that all of God's promises and blessings come to us through the servant of the Lord. All of God's promises and blessings come to us through Jesus Christ. And he shows us that this morning, first by leading us through a subject that is very uncomfortable, the wrath of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord. So listen again to verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You know, many people find God's wrath both unsettling, upsetting, and offensive. Because you see, for many people, the God who burns with wrath is a cold and loveless God. A God who is angry is a God who is both unlovable and unworthy of our love. And so many people have said in the past, and they continue to say, that the God of the Old Testament is a vicious and angry God. And so for many people, the God of the Old Testament, God of Isaiah, the God of Isaiah who pours out his wrath, that God, for many people, is an embarrassment that they wish to forget. And this has caused one theologian, Richard Niebuhr, who himself was no Bible-thumping fundamentalist. He noticed this, and he said it, and he expressed this, this mindset in this way. Uh, Richard Niebuhr, he wrote, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. Did you hear that? A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom, of, kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And that's really fascinating because uh, Richard Niebuhr was himself not a, a conservative uh, Christian. But even he saw the absurdity of what was happening around him. But you and I, we need to understand that there is such a thing as God's wrath. And that... The wrath of God is not just an Old Testament concept. Let me give you some examples from the New Testament. Let me give you some examples from the book of Romans because whatever you think the New Testament is about, you cannot get more New Testament 
than Romans. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Did you hear that? The wrath of God is revealed. And then Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Romans chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. Again, whatever you may think the New Testament is all about, you cannot get more New Testament than the book of Romans. And it is the book of Romans, along with the rest of the New Testament, that tells us that God's wrath is the crisis that we cannot save ourselves from. It is the crisis, our most terrible, most urgent problem. God's wrath. And it is because of that that the New Testament presents the gospel of Jesus Christ not as a way of achieving your full potential, not as a way of living your best life, but the New Testament presents the gospel as the only means of being delivered from God's wrath. That is to say, God's wrath is real. It's not just an Old Testament thing. But it is a very problem that every human being faces, and it is that problem that the gospel is a solution to. And we need to recognize that God's wrath is real because it is God's holy response to sin. And because God's holiness is is a perfect holiness, God's holiness knows no bounds. And that makes God's wrath against sin immeasurable and infinite because God's wrath, His holy wrath, is an expression of His holiness against sin. How wrathful is God towards sin and sinners? Infinitely. Because His holiness is infinite. And of course, Jerusalem knows this all too well. So the Lord speaks to them through Isaiah, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Everything that, was, that had happened and was happening to Jerusalem was not ultimately the expression of wrath of Assyria or even Babylon. It was the wrath of God. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And that is to say, all that Jerusalem has suffered 
Everything that has left Jerusalem without help, without hope, without a future, it was all the pouring out of God's holy wrath upon her sins. So that is what you and I need to see first and foremost, the wrath of the Lord. But then that is not where the Lord leaves us today because the Lord tells us something amazing. And the second thing that we see is the mercy of the Lord. The mercy of the Lord. Now, when we think about the wrath of God, the thing that we need to realize is that you and I, no human being has a way of answering God's wrath. So look at verses 18 through 20. The Lord speaks to Jerusalem. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne. Your sons have fainted. They all, they lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. And what the Lord is saying to Jerusalem is this. No one that has come from you None of your sons, none of your children is able to help you against my wrath. None of you is able to defend your, help defend you against my wrath. None of you can stand up to my wrath. And of course, that's only natural, isn't it? When, when God pours out his wrath, what man can answer that wrath? And that is why in verse 19, we hear this anguished cry. Who will console you? Who will comfort you? Because there's no one. No one that can console Jerusalem against the wrath of God. There's no one that can comfort Jerusalem against God's holy judgment. And it is against that inability of man to save himself, the the inability of man to help himself against God's wrath that God declares in verse 21, therefore, hear this, because you are unable to save yourself, because you are unable to help yourself, because you are not capable of meeting and answering my wrath, therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Now the word, God who pleads, that verb plead, it's a, it's a verb that comes from the court of law. And it has the sense of arguing a case in a court of law. And so what God is saying is this, because you are unable to face my wrath, because you are uh, unable to, to survive my judgment, because you cannot save yourself, therefore, I am going to plead your case. I am going to argue your case, and I am going to provide a way for you to be saved. But the way that I'm going to provide will stand up to the scrutiny of his holy law. And the way that God provides is such that he's going to inflict and mete out his holy and just wrath upon sin and yet save sinners. 
And God's will allows both God's holiness to express itself without compromise, and God's will allows at the same time His mercy to flow without measure. Now, how does God do this? You know, I sometimes envy the Puritans because I read that their Sunday sermons routinely went on for hour, two hours, three hours. And if I had such a time, <laughs> I could tell you everything, perhaps. But today I can only point you to the fact that it's a few verses later and after this that God tells us how he provides a way for his holy wrath to be exercised without compromise and for his mercy to flow without measure. And that comes in chapter 52, verse 13, when the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. That's God's way. And then a few verses after that, we get chapter 53, verse 5. But he, the servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's God's way. The servant of the Lord, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who stands in the place of the sinners, and he receives God's holy wrath in full measure. And because he suffers and receives God's wrath and answers for our sins, God's mercy flows without measure to sinners. And that is why in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, this is what Paul says, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, that's what the servant of the Lord has come to do. He has not come primarily to be a good example for us. Now, he is, of course, certainly that. But that's not primarily why he came. He, is not, he did not come in order that we might have a wonderful and a beautiful life. That's not why he came. The servant of the Lord came to save us from God's wrath. And so, in Jesus Christ, God's wrath is both satisfied and God's wrath is also averted. Jesus died on the cross, bearing our sins, and in the body of Jesus Christ, in the rejection of Jesus Christ, in his suffering and death, God's infinite and holy wrath was expressed to his fullest measure. So his wrath satisfied. And in the same suffering and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he stood in our place, God's wrath has been averted and diverted from us. Or can I put it this way? The holy God 
brought sinful men into the kingdom of grace through the ministrations of Christ upon the cross. That's what God has done. And that is why the real problem is not so much that Christmas has become secular and commercial. That's not the real problem. It's just one day. Rather, the real outrage, the real scandal is that the holiness of God, God's wrath, the cross of Jesus Christ and the mercy of God is so absent from so much of today's so-called Christian worship sermons and conversation. That's the real scandal. That's the real outrage. Yes, keep Christ in Christmas by, by all means. But do you see that you and I, you and I would have no blessing from God apart from Jesus Christ. You and I have no answer to God's wrath except in Jesus Christ. Because it is through and in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have God's mercy without measure. And thirdly and finally, we come then to consider the cup of the Lord, the cup of the Lord. Jesus suffered God's wrath for us. And if you remember, he, Jesus, agonized over the cross. So we read in Matthew chapter 26, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup? It's the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink. You see, Jesus understood the meaning of the cross. He knew that to suffer and die on the cross wasn't just to suffer merely the rejection and the sentence of man. But to suffer and die on the cross meant that Jesus would stand in the place of sinners like you and I and to suffer God's wrath in our place. The cross of uh, the cross upon which he died. That is where Jesus faced the holy God's utter and complete rejection. And he had to drink the cup of God's wrath and it filled his heart with agony. It filled his heart with pain. Now, don't you for a minute think that he was in any way less than perfectly committed to save us. When he asked, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, that, that agony, that reservation to drink God's rest stems from his holiness. You and I, we're compromised. Our hearts are impure. We think so little of God's holiness. We think so lightly of God's wrath. Jesus was perfect in holiness. It hurt him to his core, the thought that he would be, he would be made to carry our sins and be made defiled in God's eyes, to face God's wrath. That filled his heart with pain and agony precisely because he was perfect in holiness. 
because he was not compromised. And yet, even to the bitter end, Jesus did not seek his own good, but he said, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it to the dregs until he stumbled and staggered under the weight of the cross. And he was made full of the wrath of the Lord, and he was made full of the rebuke of the holy God. But what has come of that? What is the outcome? What is the fruit of Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath? Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, you and I, we drink from a different cup. And this, this table, that is a graphic and a pointed reminder and an illustration. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, now the Lord gives us the cup of fellowship and peace. And because Jesus was rejected by God, we now get to meet God as family and as friends. And because Jesus drank the bitter cup of death, you and I, we get to drink the cup that is filled with wine that cheers our hearts. And each week, we drink from the cup of the Lord and remember that in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's wrath is both satisfied and has been averted. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We have peace with God. And we have received his mercy without measure. And so once again, yes, by all means, let us keep Christ in Christmas. But don't stop there. Keep Christ in your conscience when remaining sin condemns your soul and when the reality and the remembrance of your sin threaten God's wrath upon your soul. Keep Christ in your conscience when you are aware of your sin and your failings and remember that Jesus died and he rose and because Jesus died and he rose, God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is spent in full. There is no wrath left. Though you and I continue to be sinners and weak and frail, God no longer has wrath left for you. There is no condemnation, but only grace and peace. So keep Christ in your conscience and keep Christ in the gospel. So many people confuse the gospel with the law. And so many think that the message of the gospel is that, that God will love you if you are good. <laughs> and so many people think that God is not pleased with us because we are not trying hard enough. Keep Jesus in the gospel. Jesus did it all. And this is the mystery of the gospel, that God is pleased with you. 
Of course, not for your sake, not for my sake, but for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. He is pleased with you. Jesus did it all. And lastly, keep Christ in your present afflictions. Jesus, he knows all about heavy afflictions. And because of that, he is tender and he is kind when we are weak. He is full of grace when you stumble. And that, that is the cup of the Lord that you and I now drink. It is the cup of fellowship and it is the cup of peace with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that in your great and boundless love, you sent your Son, your only begotten Son, your precious Son, that he might stand in our place and receive upon his body and soul your holy wrath. And Lord Jesus, how can we ever praise you enough? How can we ever thank you enough for standing in our place? We are humbled, and we thank you, and we praise you. And we only pray, O oh God, that we would, we would continue to live with faith in our hearts, that we would endeavor and strive to express our love and our gratitude as long as we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.